Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor at Horse and Hound. I hope everyone's had a good week since we checked in on the last episode. Our guest this time is British dressage team member Gareth Hughes, who has all the insight on his up-and-coming Grand Prix horse, Sintano Van Hoff Olympia, and how he decided to ride for Britain rather than Australia, where he grew up. I always sort of thought, well, if, if I was good enough to get on the British team, that would mean more. So I decided it was Team GB, and there hasn't been a day that I've regretted that decision. We'll then have our news segment as usual, but this week is going to be a bit different to normal because, by the wonders of technology, I'm actually recording this intro a week in advance because I'm going to be on holiday the week this podcast episode comes out. I'm therefore handing our news section over to my colleague Polly Bryan, who will be trying to control and corral our panellists in my absence. Good luck with that, Polly. Finally, Supergroom Alan Davies gives his advice on when you can and can't clip your horse and how best to go about it. I come from a showing background and a lot of showing people say you shouldn't clip after sort of December, January time, but I find you can and you can still get a good summer coat. So without further ado, it's time to pull down your stirrups and welcome this week's guest. Hello, I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hounds, and I'm delighted to welcome this week's guest, top British Grand Prix rider, Gareth Hughes. Hi, Gareth. Morning, how are you? Very good, thank you. Gareth has silver and bronze team medals to his name, and he was the best performing British rider at last year's European Championships with Classic Brailinka, finishing seventh in the Grand Prix Special and tenth in the freestyle. He's one of Britain's hot prospects for the Tokyo team. And actually, with the Olympics pushed back a year, Gareth will be going into 2021 with no fewer than four Grand Prix horses. Gareth, that's quite a string. Uh, <laughs> it's very tiring. <laughs> um, it is, it is. No, I've been, I've been sort of very lucky. Sort of all these horses have sort of come about and, and sort of ended up at, at this level. And um, it does make it quite a hard balance, but it's a very nice problem to have. Absolutely. So your latest horse to reach Grand Prix level is the very exciting Centano Van Hoff Olympia. Yes. Um, and I hear that lockdown was actually partly the reason he was able to step up to this level a bit sooner than planned. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So Centano we got as a six-year-old. He's owned by ourselves and um, Judy Thurston-Williams. And his first year at Small Tour was uh, 2019. Um, and he had a, a great season i think he won seven international titles um, and he won the nationals and you know you usually at that level you give them a couple of years but he sort of came through so well so <clears throat> the plan was for this year is to get him up to into to do the nationals and then think about grand prix through the winter and then with the situation we all ended up in i was uh, stuck at home so um we sort of util utilized that time and he actually came on a lot quicker than um, I expected. And so then when we started competing with with the fact that we have no summer championships this year, um, we decided just to step him up into Grand Prix. Um, and he's he's taken to it incredibly well. He's already had a couple of really good Grand Prix scores, hasn't mm. he? Yeah. Well, he's done two Grand Prix and he's got 74 in both. Amazing. 
And he also features in this week's issue of the magazine. He's in our Ones to Watch series. Um, I hear that he's a horse with quite a sense of humour. Is that right? Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, he, I, remember the, I remember the very first time I rode him when we got him is uh, I was working around and I stopped in the corner to do the girth up. And before I knew it, we were in the middle of the arena. He was shaking. I was shaking. Um, he, no, he's. I mean, he's a big, strong horse. He's. Um, when we first got him, and still, still now, he just gets a little nervous with lots of movement and things going on around him. And he's incredibly athletic. And he used to be. Shall we say that when you used to get on him, it sort of felt that he didn't quite know where he was going to end up. So it didn't give you a lot of confidence. And, <laughs> and then you used to sort of close your leg to give yourself a bit of security. And he took great offence to that. Oh, gosh. Which made it even worse. Um, and he's, he's, he's sort of better and better now. But um, I remember last year I did the, um, I was part of the demo at Olympia. And so I took him down to do the demo. So we're in the, the morning of before Olympia where all the, you know, the, the exhibitors for the Grand Prix for the World Cup were all sort of working our horses. So I brought Sintano in just to give him a, a bit of a leg stretch in the main arena and let him have a look at it. And I got on. I, I still, it's embarrassing. I still to this day have to be led off. Oh, um, and uh, I was being led round and there was total silence because this horse, it looked like he was an unbacked three-year-old. And there was <laughs> nobody moved. And then, then I heard this sort of, should we click? It's like, just don't say anything. And then once his back goes down, he's, he's, he sort of gets on with his job. But yes, he has um, personality. But I tell you what, when he gets going in the arena, he's been amazing. Um, he's so he's so focused on his job. He really tries in the arena. And, you know, this this personality, this this something else that they have about them, you know, when that comes into play and you can direct it, then, you know, it works to your favour. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's definitely one to keep an eye on. Mm. Um, just tell us a bit about your other Grand Prix horses at the moment. You've obviously got your lovely mare, Classic Brilinka, who you've had so much success with. Yeah. Who are your other ones at the moment at that level? So then I've got another two which are owned by um, the Kroll family from Switzerland. Uh, one's called KK Woodstock. Um, he's, uh, he's 14 now, 14 year old German Golding. And I've got uh, a little stallion called KK Dominant. Um, who is um, 11. Danny, the stallion dominant, he did his first Grand Prix. He was, he was reserve national champion into two horse in 218. He's come out and done, done um, a few Grand Prix now. I think he's done three or four. He's got a couple of international results under his belt. He's a really lovely type. Um, and then KK Woodstock, who has sort of come round as my uh, second Grand Prix horse behind Bray Linker. And he did, he did Olympia last year mm. um, and um, a couple of other big internationals. So, yeah, no, four, four, four there, really good at the moment. Um, and then another one at home that's not far behind. Very, very exciting. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the early days of your career. You you were born in Britain, but you grew up in Australia, weren't you? Yeah. And uh, I understand that becoming a dressage rider for Britain wasn't necessarily the path you always thought you were going to take, was it? <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> I, I I grew up in Jimboomba. So, my, you know, my address was 95 Dundee Road, Jimboomba, and not many kids <laughs> from Jimboomba end up on the European circuit doing dressage. <laughs> We, we moved out there when I was six and, you know, we moved to the country. And so, you know, mum had a horse when she was younger. So she decided that it would be nice for all the kids to learn how to ride. Um, and so we started to ride and my the local trainer who I started working with was a, 
he was like this all-round Aussie performance trainer. And over there, you have um, an awful lot of competitions like you don't have in this country with, with the Western and the reigning and mm. Australian stock horse and, and things like that, which are all which are all sort of classes adapted for, um, for the show ring from what horses do or cowboys or Australian stockmen do out rounding up and working cattle and stuff. So it's all adapted to the show ring. And so that's where I started and that's what I got going with. So when I was younger, I grew up doing, you know, Western and stock horse and, you know, English classes and all, all of those sort of things. Um, but I was sort of still slightly obsessed with following dressage. So my my Christmas present of my grandparents used to be the British Dressage magazine because my grandparents are British. <laughs> so I used to, as a teenager, get the British Dressage magazine every month. And so I used to actually follow what was going on here. So even though I was doing no dressage in Australia as such, um, I used to sort of follow it. And then, then you know, we had video recorders. So I used to get things like the European Champs and the World Cups um, sent out to Australia on a nice videotape. Um, <laughs> and then, um, and then I did, I did do a um, into high school competition, which was a competition they had over there in Queensland, where riders from different high schools competed against each other. I won the dressage and it was at a, an equestrian venue called Pine Lodge and the new trainer at Pine Lodge was a lady called Sandra Pearson Adams. And Sandra Pearson Adams is a fellow of the British Horse Society. And Sandra Pearson Adams years ago used to teach Richard Davidson. And so all this little connection sort of came through back and every everything kept connecting back to England. Right. And then I had another trainer um just before sandra actually and it was this old old lady she came up to me at an arabian show because her granddaughter her daughter sorry um bred arabians and i was competing on the on the arabian circuit and this old lady came up to me i was about 14 and she um she asked if she could see my parents and speak to my parents and she did she said she wanted to train me we didn't know who she was at this point um, and um, she ended up being a, um, a dressage trainer and her daughter is a lady called Mary Seafried and Mary Seafried is a five-star dressage judge. Ah. So I had these sort of connections back through a couple of my trainers which connected me to the dressage, which connected me back to England and things without really realising it. It was all sort of coming together and then my parents were over here and I thought, do you know what I'll do is before I you know, get any older or settle down and things like that, I'm going to come to England I'm going to spend 18 months there. I'm going to pick up a British accent and then I'm going to go back to Australia and I'll earn more money because I'll sound British and they'll think I'm better. <laughs> and that was actually, it was my plan for, for coming to England was actually to do that. Wow. <laughs> um, and 20 odd years later, I'm still here. You're still here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How seriously did you ever consider riding for Australia rather than Britain? Very. So, um, you know, I, I, I grew up an Australian um, and uh, when I was I was in my early 20s, when I came came to England and still 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 very much a, an Aussie at heart, um, I actually contemplated moving back to Australia. I'd gone back on holiday. Um, I'd been in, in the UK for just under 10 years. It was actually. Um, and then I came back from this trip from Australia. And I think on that that trip decided that possibly to move back to Australia. And then, then when I got back, I was opening up my mail and I'd been, um, I'd been picked on this horse to go on the, the British Dressage Pathway program. 
And I thought, and that was my first, first thing that ever came through that sort of connected up sort of really, really sort of, you know, being picked for something, even though I was only on a young horse and it was only the pathway, but it was a start. It felt like mm. my opening in because mm. I didn't grow up, you know, over here connected with trainers or, you know, the bird system or this that, and the other as a, as a kid, as you come through or, or the juniors or the young riders or anything yeah. like that. I came over as an adult. So that happened. And I thought, is this basically, is this a sign um, to stay, to stay in the UK? So hence I stayed um then i'd sort of i did more with the world class and then <clears throat> i got a grand prix horse and that did well and then i mm. ended up on the the um the performance program and so all of a sudden my my career this is what i'm going to do this is you know, my sec basically my second career in horses really yeah um, but this is this is what i am going to do is that the support i'd had through you know, through the lottery funding, UK sport, British dressage and everything is then all of a sudden I started to turn and think, well, actually, you know, no, they, they've been supporting me. And so therefore, you know, give something back. So anyway, so that was it. So, you know, I started riding for, for GB and, you know, I got on teams and I got a medal and got a second medal and everything was good. Um, and then they must have noticed, Australia must have noticed me because I got asked if I would ride for Australia. Oh, really? So they came to me before um, the 2012, actually, just okay. before the London Olympics. Um, and they said, would I be interested? And I, I did really think about, I had good conversations with them and really, really thought about and thought, okay, you know, which way, you know, do I go forward with this? Yeah. And because I was still sort of slightly pulled between growing up in Australia and, and now now living in England. But the main the main two points were I'd already competed for GB. I received a couple of metal medals um, and I was extremely proud to wear that flag. Um, and that was that was a huge thing because, um, you know, being being that proud to have the British flag on my jacket. Um, meant a lot and the second thing was is I always sort of thought well if I was if I was good enough to get on the British team that would mean more and so I had to give it a lot of thought um, you know it was an opportunity for me to go back and ride for the country that I grew up in that I was you know I, Australia is an amazing country it was you know I had a, a fantastic childhood over there I still got three sisters that live over there I still have a massive connection with Australia I was up until last year I was the trainer of the um, Australian event team so there were so many connections through through to Australia um, but I decided that as my career as a rider, as my, you know, my personal career, um, as who I wanted to ride for and represent that, um, it was, it was team GB and, you know, I've never, never, there hasn't been a day that I've regretted that decision. Oh, that's really good to hear. And of course you're based in Warwickshire now, aren't yeah. you? With your wife, yeah. Rebecca. And I want to know, are you still into your Western riding? Are you still, do you still <laughs> have all the Western gear? Uh, well, I've still got, I've still got the boots and the chaps and, and everything <laughs> like that. I've got, actually, I've got a Western hat hanging on the back of the bedroom door. Um, so do, do you know what? It's it sort of, I would love, you know, maybe one day, you know, sort of sit on one again. It's the thing is, is that, you know, I, Growing up in somewhere like Australia, you know, all these options are there and it was fantastic. You know, 
it was just a different style of growing up you know over here you sort of a lot of people grow up and they do you know when they're kids and they do the venting or the jumping or the dressage where over there i did the western it was just a completely different routine you know there's a lot of similarities between western riding and dressage riding um you know just through just through the fact that it's patterns and it's cues and it's and its maneuvers and things like that um I did, um, I did love it, but I don't think you'll probably sort of see me competing on the reigning circuit. <laughs> not, not yet, anyway. <laughs> not yet, no. No, maybe well, when I get old. Well, I imagine you will have your work cut out with all your horses up at that top level over the next uh, 12 months or so. Um, mm. And Tokyo, presumably, is, is the goal. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, was, again, who could have foreseen what happened this year? Absolutely. Um, we had a great year with Bray Linker last year, and we were, we, you know, started beginning of this year, and, you know, our plans very much to aim to try and get on that team for, for Tokyo, and everything was in a really, really good place, and, you know, we were basically ready, and um, it was obviously extremely disappointing, but, you know, totally out of our control, and... You know, obviously the pandemic's slightly more important than, you know, us just competing at the Olympics. So, but, you know, we'll now, we'll now sort of train over the winter. Um, there's still not many competitions for us to compete at, especially with the fact of having to self-isolate going abroad and things. And, you know, the, especially for the dressage, the, the highlight of our year, the one the thing we always build up for is, is the championship. Yeah. Um, so with that taken uh, away this year, you know, we'll drop down quieter. Now we'll sort of uh, regroup over the winter and then plan for the beginning of next year. And then let's, let's see what happens next year. Let's hope that it goes ahead. Absolutely. Let's keep all of our fingers crossed and mm. we'll be really, really excited to see you out over the winter and end into next year with your lovely string of horses. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Horse and Hound podcast. That's a pleasure. Good to speak to you. Ah, oh, the brilliant Gareth Hughes there. He's always so great to chat to. Now over to the news section for this week. Pippa is enjoying some well-earned time off at the moment, so I've taken over the reins, as it were. I'm joined by two of our lovely news team today. We've got news editor Eleanor Jones. Hi, Eleanor. Hello. And senior news writer Lucy Elder. Hi, Lucy. Hi. I think it's been a bit of a strange week for everyone this week, with coronavirus cases sadly back on the rise, and of course new restrictions being brought in, which we will discuss a little bit later. But on the bright side, we've been enjoying some lovely weather over the past few days. Sadly, I don't have a horse at the moment to enjoy it with, but I did manage to get out on a lovely long walk with my rescue dog Bertie in the Surrey Hills on Saturday, which was just glorious. Eleanor, what have you been up to this week? Uh, I went went to a show on Friday. I have to say one thing about working from home. We did quite a lot anyway, but um, I managed to take half a day's holiday, rode, rode one of my horses first thing, few hours work from the yard, got the other horse in, got her ready, went to the show, came back and then finished off my work day. And you oh, wouldn't lovely. be able to do that if you were <laughs> commuting to London. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's it's There's a lot of bright sides, isn't there, with uh, with our yeah. new working arrangements. Lucy, what what about you? So I took my lovely mare out on hound exercise on Sunday with my local bloodhounds pack, which was, again, as you said, the weather's just been glorious and it was it was absolutely heavenly. I was a little bit anxious. Uh, she's seen hounds probably once before a couple of years ago. And as I mean, as lots of horse people will know, the first time is usually all right. And then once they know, 
it can be a little bit of a different kettle of fish. But bless her, she just behaved as if it was completely normal. And she was a really good girl. I've got my break sorted out. She was just, yeah, I had the most wonderful day, to be honest. So, yeah, all very good. Oh, lovely. It's so nice to be getting back to some of these slightly more normal activities, isn't it? So the first story that we're going to talk about this week is a really interesting one. And it's a topic that inevitably raises a lot of different opinions. We're talking about cloning, which although it is still very rare, it is being used nowadays primarily as a way of preserving valuable bloodlines and also endangered breeds. This week, Eleanor has been reporting on the birth of a foal in the USA, a clone of a stallion who died decades ago. Eleanor, I'm going to let you tell us what breed this foal was, because <laughs> I think that you can now claim to be one of the few people who can correctly pronounce it. <laughs> well, I was very impressed with myself that by yesterday I could actually spell it as well without having to check. So this is, I had always thought it was Przewalski's. I have been told it is Chevalski's horse. Um, so these are the ones that, although I have actually, I just double checked before we came on here because I wanted to make double sure I was saying it right. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently Przewalski's is how some people say it. So Przewalski's, okay. Chevalski's. We know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> That's always good to know how to say it. I'm not sure if uh, if many people would actually have pronounced that correctly. <laughs> so we've all learned something today already. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And um, so what they've done, and it's amazing, really, because this is tissue. So all the surviving Chevalsky's horses are descended from 12 who were saved from extinction, extinction at the beginning of the last century. And of course, the problem there is that the gene pool is then so narrow, they get to what's called a genetic bottleneck where there just isn't enough genetic diversity uh, in the breed. And so this the foal is a clone of a stallion who I think is the tissue was stored in 1980 and kept at the San Diego Zoo and they've finally now 40 years later been able to recreate him. Wow I mean this is really amazing stuff isn't it and I know you spoke to several experts um, for this for this news piece um, among them was Tullis Matson from Stallion AI Services in Shropshire and I found it really interesting that he was explaining that breeds becoming endangered is not simply down to there not being enough horses being bred is it? No it's down to this um, inbreeding so when you haven't got a big enough uh, or you haven't got enough genetic diversity and you have inbreeding then you can get all sorts of issues like lack of fertility, worse quality semen, smaller testicles, higher uh, neonatal death rates and he said they call it the extinction vortex so you can you just sit there and watch the breed disappear and go extinct um, so he's all for this cloning he says it's it's brilliant news. Absolutely I think it does sound as though it could have real potential for helping save some of these breeds that we love so much, but are sadly becoming, you know, closer and closer to extinction. And, and of course, there are actually quite a few breeds that would be classed as that. But many people are still sceptical about equine cloning as a concept, aren't they? And, and as a practice. So why, why is that? So, yeah, as, as Tallis said, sometimes cloning can be seen as a dirty word or dirty term. And Ryan Phelan, who is the founder of Revive and Restore, one of the um, organisations that worked on this cloning project, as she said, environmentalists do and other people do sometimes talk about whether we should, quote, interfere in nature or should just sit back and let it take its course. But then, of course, if you do let that happen, species can go extinct. And another thing Tullis was saying, actually, is how there are other populations of other 
species um say in africa they have these closed populations with of elephants for example because they're on a reserve and then you get that inbreeding there too so this is a technology that could potentially save other species um, and of course everyone has to make sure that at all times the health and welfare of these animals is at the forefront which i'm sure they do that obviously is the most important thing to make sure of i also think this foal has quite an interesting name doesn't it do you want to share that with us eleanor yeah i thought this was lovely so there was a geneticist at the san diego zoo which was also a major part of this project called kurt benersk and he it was him who had the idea of preserving these um genetic samples these tissue samples in what's called the san diego frozen zoo and this was like decades before this technology was even dreamed of but he had the foresight to save them which is now with why we've got this foal and so they named him after him and actually what's also lovely is his son is now uh, dr Banesh's son is now on the san diego zoo board of directors Oh, that's a really lovely story. And it's it's a really exciting and interesting debate, isn't it? And yeah. it's one that I'm sure that we will continue to cover quite a lot in the future. On to you now, Lucy. So new rules have been brought in by the government to try to control the growing number of coronavirus cases. And the news desk has been covering the way in which they might impact equestrian sport. I'm sure we're all very familiar now with Boris Johnson's rule of six, which does vary across the UK, but in England means that people can no longer gather in groups of more than six indoors or outdoors. So, Lucy, what does this mean for equestrian sport? I think it's mostly good news on this front, isn't it? Yes, Polly, you're right. I think a lot of us were watching Boris's press conference last week and wondering what it was going to mean for a, a lot of areas of our lives, to be honest. And part of that being the equestrian side, the equestrian sports side. But you're right, it is, it is mostly good news in that we've had confirmation from British Equestrian that it's fine to continue. And of course, there are extra rules regarding that, as in venues and all those involved are urged to be sort of extra vigilant and make sure they really are complying. It's also now a requirement that they are recording who's there rather than just a you know, highly recommended as in before. And also informal meetings. So if you're meeting up with friends to go hacking, then those absolutely do still uh, must comply with the rule of six. And then, as you said, those are rules for England. So Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales, there's no changes to the numbers who can gather in those areas. And you've written a story for this week's news section, haven't you, on the plans for the return of point to pointing, which is hoped to be able to run with spectators this season, isn't it? It's hoped so. I mean, it's still very early days and obviously us putting these calls in around the time the press conference is coming out. But they are they are really, really hot on it and really up to speed. And everyone I spoke to was really, really praising the work of the point to point authority, in particular Chief Executive Peter Wright and the sort of guidance that he's been giving and the guidance that he's been receiving as well. And I mean, the sort of first thing to say is that everyone's just really hoping to get pointing off the ground. It's been brought, the start of the season has been brought forward to October. And we know that the Ledbury at Maysmore, which is one of the fixtures in the opening weekend, is definitely, it is running behind closed doors to sort of act as a blueprint for, for other fixtures in case, you know, lockdown restrictions are tightened up throughout the season to make sure right. that the sport can can keep going and that it has you know it's shown to work and that it can work and they've been doing a lot of work with Stratford uh, Racecourse and there's so much work been going on in terms of looking at different levels that the sport can run at in terms of how open it is or completely closed looking at the layout of sites to ease social distancing where possible even down to the size of paddocks and things like that and 
possibilities of having zones where people drive directly to their zone and they can't you know cross into other zones and things like that but as we all know point to points tend to be run in great big open fields yes, people exactly. spectators even if they are driving there are are going in their own cars and tend to be operating out of car park anyway so i think people are cautiously hopeful that it will be possible to run with spectators at some point and certainly as one of the people i spoke to said every option that could be thought of has been thought out and worked through and so i think we're as well there's certainly demand from trainers and riders to have to have the season up and going again as as soon as possible and it would be so so lovely if that could get up and running especially if spectators were able to be involved as well and i know there's been some financial boosts recently for the point-to-point industry as well hasn't there Yes, that's right. Some of the long-standing sponsors, the Jockey Club, Oriental Club and Tussles have created a 12 grand pot to help with the running of the first six fixtures. Because, of course, numbers through the gate are all what really brings in the money. And if they are going to have to be behind closed doors, that is a serious hit for the organisers, the hunts and the point points themselves. And Totnes and Bridgetown Racers has also provided a 10 grand uh, pot to kickstart the sport in Devon and Cornwall. And that's going to be partially spent on uh, a not quite live stream, contact us card readers, race sponsorship as well. And I thought that was quite interesting as well about live streams in that they're not going to be mm. quite live because of course there's betting regulations and things that have to be complied with. But that's certainly an area that I know Devon and Cornwall are really looking into. And I think other areas are considering it as well to get, I mean, we've seen it work really well in eventing this year and dressage. And so it really helps to sort of keep people engaged, even if they can't physically be there. I think there's there's possibly some potential here, isn't there, for, you know, the sport, a sport like point to pointing to be almost pushed a little bit into into a more modern way of running um, in some ways. Do you think that's the case? In some ways, I think it's been so wonderful to hear how positive everyone is talking about this, whether they're organisers, secretaries, riders, trainers, the authority and how strongly they are working together to find a find a way through. And I think that can only be a good thing. And if it does, you know, if the technology boost does bring it to a wider audience, I mean, I'm, I'm biased because I love the sport. I'm really, really passionate about it. And I'm really excited at the thought that I would be able to, you know, hopefully be a spectator going back if, if, if that's allowed to go and watch it. But I think it's a fantastic sport and if it can open itself up to wider audience by you know having live streams as well and encouraging people to get involved I think yeah maybe that could be a good thing but I think they're just very much focused on getting it running safely first. Absolutely and that's got to be the priority I suppose like with everything this is a new normal uh, but after everything we've been through this year any essence of normality is very very welcome. There has been some really sad news this week, though, in the cancellation of Olympia in December. For me, this is always such a wonderful highlight of the year. I know it's for you as well, Lucy, as well as so many other people. It seems very, very strange and sad that it won't be going ahead this year, doesn't it? Oh, so sad. It's definitely... Is it wrong to say I'm almost more excited about Olympia than Christmas quite often? Olympia Um, is Christmas for me. It is Christmas, isn't it? It's always the week before and it just, oh, it's fantastic. And it's uh, it's really, really sad that it it can't run. But as they said, it was a really difficult decision to make and health and welfare of everyone involved was at the heart of that decision-making process. So... It'll make 2021 even more special. It will, it will. I know I know. many of us had wondered whether there was any possibility that some of the competition could go ahead, maybe behind closed doors. 
Yes, I mean, sadly, that's that's not the case this year. And so all, all the competition, along with the international displays and the traditional Olympia festive entertainment, Rival Father Christmas, is is not happening, not happening this year. But as I said before, really looking forward to, to 2021. And I'm sure it'll be back bigger and better than ever before. Well, as we have had to learn to do so much this year, we have to look ahead to next year. And I know that if nothing else, we will definitely appreciate all these wonderful events even more than we already did. Thanks so much to both of you for joining me on the podcast today and catch up with you soon. Bye, Lucy. Bye, Polly. And bye, Eleanor. Take care. Over to Alan Davies now, super groom to Charlotte Dujardin and Carl Hester. So this episode, we're going to talk about clipping. I quite often get asked about clipping. Um, our horses compete all year round now with the World Cup um, qualifiers um, at places like Olympia and Amsterdam in the winter and then the finals in April so it's quite a big topic to discuss really I mean on the whole I've been really lucky my horses are all um, really good to clip I mean if you do get one that really hates it then you need to speak to the vet really Vallegro um, case in point he I used to clip him about seven times through the winter um, he always used to have to have he's quite hairy naturally so he used to have I used to have to take everything off legs head everything and I used to have to start in about September clipping him and I would clip him right the way through till April I'd have to clip him for the World Cup finals in April he would because we would be indoors we did the World Cup finals one year in Leon and then one year in Las Vegas so you know Las Vegas was hot but then Leon was still quite hot because it was indoors so some people say you shouldn't clip after Christmas keep their summer coats but make sure they're as clean as possible um, if possible give them a bath before clipping and make sure the blades are good and sharp um, and the, the clippers are all serviced up so they don't break and then I find it's really good to give them a really good groom afterwards and then a hot cloth to get all the the grease and the hair off the coat, um, off the skin, and then you should get a, a really good finish in, in the end. And if you make sure you feed them right and give them some oil in their food, then the coat should stay looking really good and um, it should grow back in really nicely. And don't worry about what time of year to clip. A lot of people are horrified when I say that. Um, I come from a showing background um, and a lot of showing people say you shouldn't clip after sort of December, January time, but I find you can and you can still get a good summer coat. It depends on the individual horse, but I mean, if you do a really good clip in March, April time and you make sure you look after the coat, you feed them well, you give them plenty of oil, then um, you can get the summer coat to come through really well but yes again it's just knowing your individual horse and making sure you're well prepared making sure the horse is really clean and the clippers are all up to date when you start so i hope that helps with a few hints and terms thank you alan and thank you also to polly for taking over our news section this week as well as interviewing our guest Next week, Alan will give us his top tips on rugging for autumn and the changeable weather that we can have at this time of the year. And our guest will be event rider Imogen Murray, who will give us the lowdown on her cross-country machine, Ivor Gooden. Thanks for listening, and please do rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word. Goodbye until next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.